Thank you guys, once again, leading us before the throne. Well, he was the toughest guy I've ever known. His name was Brandon Chafee, and I worked with him as a commercial diver for a few years, and we would go out on the road, and commercial divers, I'm not sure if you know much about them, but they are typically pretty surly, mean, kind of tough guys. They live hard, they live on the road typically, they're, they're probably all a little disappointed that they thought about being a commercial diver and thought of Jacques Cousteau and diving for treasures on sunken ships and they end up pumping garbage out of intake systems in, in New Jersey. So uh, they're a little surly because of that, but they're really tough people. And I, I worked for a few years as a commercial diver and when I was about 19, I worked on a crew really regularly with one of the guys named Brandon Chafee. And Brandon was about 6'4", probably 220, no fat on the guy. Before he was a commercial diver, he was a lumberjack for about 10 years. And he just didn't like people very much. So that was a good job for him. He would just take saws and gas cans and chains and he'd go off into the woods and fell trees for a couple days and not see anybody, and he loved that. And then he became a commercial diver, and I not only went on the road with him with a crew of four, but he and I ended up sharing a tent in Holtwood, Pennsylvania to save per diem, staying in a campground. And I was a Christian, I was 19, and Brandon was one tough dude. We had a guy in our crew named Mike Pellini. He was tough too. But he was a little Italian guy who would start fights, but he wasn't good at finishing them. But, um, <laughs> but Brandon would finish the fights. I don't think there was anybody we ever ran into who Brandon couldn't take in a fight. And at one time I saw his stomach and it was just one giant scar. And I found out what happened. He was cheating on his wife and he came home one day and she had found out it was happening. He opened the door to his apartment and she stuck a shotgun in his stomach and pulled the trigger. So Brandon grabbed his stomach and drove to the hospital to get it taken care of. Yeah, he was a tough dude. And, um, and, and he, was, he was probably late 30s at the time. I was just a 19-year-old kid, but I was a Christian. And I wanted to, I wanted to lead Brandon to Christ. I, I wanted him to understand who Jesus was and how much he needed Christ. And, you know, in my life... I've, I've talked to, I don't know, thousands of people about Jesus, and, and overwhelmingly the response has been positive. I think we don't give people the benefit of the doubt enough, and we assume they're going to be resistant and opposed. But in my experience, I mean, I could tell you stories all night of people that I assumed were going to stiff arm me when I told them about Jesus, but they were very receptive and very eager to talk. I remember one time I was on a plane with a guy and he sat down, and his Starbucks cup had Raul on it. And so I just messed with him for a little while. And I, said, I was on a plane, and he sat down. I said, Raul, how you doing? And he goes, oh, hey, how are you? And he, uh, he told me later he thought I was a client. He sold steel for a living, and he thought I was a client, and he was about to lose an account because he couldn't even remember who I was. And I messed with him for about 10 minutes, just strung him along. And I finally said, Raul, I don't know who you are, man. I just saw your name in the cup. And he's like, oh, I can't believe you did that. But, um, but it, was, it was amazing because I, I got talking to Raul, and, and uh, he was a good-looking guy and young. I could tell he was successful at what he was doing, selling steel. And... 
And he said, I talked to him a while about that. And he said, what are you doing? I said, well, I, I'm a pastor. And he goes, oh, man. And I thought, wow, what's, this, what's coming next? And he said, man, do I have some questions for you. And, and he said, you know, I was raised Roman Catholic. We never really read our Bible at all in, that, in my church or my family. But I, here I am in my late 20s, and I'm, I'm wanting to read the Bible. And Raul says, I'm reading the Bible, and it seems to me that the God of the Old Testament is pretty different than the God of the New Testament. And the main way is the God of the Old Testament requires sacrifice, and the God of the New Testament offers a sacrifice, and I can't make much sense of this. Could you help me with this? And I said, well, yes, I can, Raul. Let's, let's talk about the blood being necessary for the forgiveness of sins and God sending his son to finally shed his blood for us. It was amazing. Raul couldn't have been more eager to talk about Jesus. But I, I've, through the years, learned to assume the best. But here I am in a tent in Holtwood, Pennsylvania, uh, not long before, actually, my dad, who was running the company, had it. That's the only reason I was working for him at 19. It, he finally had a fire, Brandon, because we, it was a hot summer in Holtwood, Pennsylvania, and we were working on a dam, on the Holtwood Dam, and there were these tail races where the big gates come down, and we needed to repair these, and they needed a lot of welding. And three times we found Brandon welding in the, in the, the tail race naked. It was just, and, and my dad said, Brandon, why weld naked? And you know what he said? I was hot. That, that, was, his, that was his answer. <laughs> so, so OSHA, thankfully OSHA never showed up and found that. But, but not long before Brandon lost his job, actually, I had a conversation with him. And I said, well, you know, Lord, I was praying for him for a while. And I was talking a little bit about my faith in Jesus. And I finally said, today I'm going to talk to Brandon about Jesus. And we're, we're there in the campground, and, and I start to preach Christ to him. And I'll never forget it. He said, shut up, kid. I'm not interested in your Jesus. And then I'll never forget what his next words were. Because I ain't no sheep. And he got up and he stormed off. Very seldom in my life has there been that kind of strong response. And I remember thinking as he walked away, I said, I think he actually has a pretty good understanding on one level of what it means to be a Christian. Because he understood at least this idea in the Bible that God's people are his sheep. And we all, like sheep, have gone astray. And we are the sheep under his care in his flock. And he is the great shepherd. And Brandon, as tough as he was, wasn't interested in having a shepherd or needing one. And so on one level, Brandon's the toughest guy I've ever known. But on another level, he lacked a kind of toughness that actually freed him to be humble and to know he needed a shepherd to know that he wasn't okay just with what he had to work with in himself. And so to become a Christian re is realizing we are, we are sheep. We need a shepherd. We need someone to provide for us and to protect us and to guide us and to discipline us at times. We are sheep. And, and so many men hear something like that, and it sounds so insulting. And I think of Brandon's words all the time, I ain't no sheep. And I think of how often rebellion rises in my own heart 
or pride rises in my own heart against another person or against God himself. And I think, I, I think I'm thinking like Brandon right now. I think I'm resisting being a sheep and needing a shepherd to care for me. We talked this morning about what Jesus did for us in his life and death and resurrection. And that will never be of benefit to you if you don't realize how desperately you need him. It breaks my heart that people become Christians and then they quickly start acting like they don't have needs anymore. We never stop needing Jesus and we won't stop needing him into eternity. We need Jesus and he'll be exalted for all of eternity because he will perpetually be our great high priest, will always meet our needs. Jesus is the one we need and we are needy. Needy and Christian should be two words that go together. Do you ever, ever have anybody say to you, ah, Christianity is just a crutch for weak people? I used to get offended by that and really defensive and like, well, I will have you know some of the smartest people who've ever lived were Christians and quite successful people. I don't, I don't respond that way anymore. When people say Christianity is a crutch for weak people, you know what I say? No, it isn't. It's more like CPR for dead people. Because I don't just need a crotch. I need life itself because I'm dead apart from God. I'm a dead man. It's not just a crutch. I don't just need help. I'm not just sick. I don't just have a bad limp. I'm dead apart from God. If you think Christianity is just a crutch, you don't know half of it. It's so much more than that. And so getting to the end of ourselves then is the absolute necessary prerequisite for getting to Jesus, for getting to the foot of the cross. And when we do, we find everything we could ever need or ever want, and we can cease striving for all the things the world promises and never actually fulfills. And so we're going to think tonight about living out of what we talked about this morning. This morning we talked about finding our identity in Christ, it, it, trading in my unrighteousness, my filthy rags that I would think are my righteousness, trading in my sin for Jesus' righteousness and the perfect forgiveness he gives me and the adoption we have now through him where we're sons through the son. C.S. Lewis is the one who said that the Son of God became the Son of Man so the sons of men could become sons of God. Isn't that beautiful? The Son of God became a Son of Man so that the sons of men could become sons of God. That's what we are. We are sons of God. We're co-heirs with Christ. It almost sounds blasphemous. It, the Bible says he's not ashamed to call us his brothers we're brought in as co-heirs with Christ by faith in union with him into a relationship that nothing can compare with. That's what we have. And now this means our entire lives are different. Everything's different now. I think you could define a Christian as someone who's beheld the glory of God in the face of Christ and is never the same. Because it's not just some religion. It's not just some moral code we live by. It's not just something we do on Sundays or maybe Wednesdays. It, it's an entire life now that is new for us that we live out in the power of the Spirit depending on Jesus every day. So that, that's what this is about. And, and so tonight I want to talk about integrity. I love that word integrity. Do you know you could describe what happened when humans rebelled against God called the fall and the curse that came about because of that in Genesis chapter 3. You could call that the great disintegration. 
In other words, we were created in an integrated way, integrated in our relationships with God, you know, at one with Him, in relationship with Him, integrated in our relationship to the world itself, to creation itself, to other people, even within ourselves. And when we rebelled against our Creator, there was a great disintegration. We weren't integrated anymore. In any of those ways, we disintegrated. And when you become a Christian, it begins the process of reintegrating yourself in relationship with God and to have a wholeness in your life. I love the word wholesome. That's what we're after, a wholesomeness in integrated lives, to be men of integrity. And there is a desperate, desperate need for men of integrity in our society. It doesn't take much to stand out as a man of integrity in our world that compromises at every turn. I remember we did some remodeling on our house a few years ago, quite a few years ago now. And as I went into it, I got a lot of advice. And they said, well, here's what you need to know. No matter what, it'll cost at least twice as much as they tell you and take at least twice as long as they tell you. And was that ever true? It was just... And it's kind of built into the system and everybody knows it going in. And and it is so rare in so many areas of life to find anybody who has integrity, who actually does what they say they're going to do. It's so hard to find men of their word. And the problem is we compare ourselves with other people. So it looks like we're doing pretty well. I actually am convinced the main reason reality shows, so-called reality shows, are so popular is because people's lives are so messed up on those shows typically that when we watch them, we say, well, I'm doing pretty well, I think. Uh, You know, you watch Hoarders, and you think, my house is a mess, but it's not that bad, right? And and, uh, I get in trouble, but I watch cops, and I've never been dragged out of my house in my boxer shorts, so I'm doing pretty well here, you know? And I just compare myself. And, and, and so we can't live that way. We can't find someone we think we're doing better than and go from there. We've got to look at God. We've got to consider who God is and then find ourselves before him desperately needy in our sin and run to Jesus and then find ourselves in him. Look at this verse in light of what we talked about this morning and as we talk about being men of integrity tonight. First Peter 1, as obedient children, that's a vital starting point, Right? We don't, we're not trying to become children. We're not living with integrity so that we become children of God. We're living with integrity because we are children of God. Remember I talked about my kids who were all orphans before they became my kids, and I'm never going to say to them, live this way so you can be in my family. It's you are a Tana, so live this way. And so we start with as obedient children. I don't know what you said growing up, but when we would play sports, um, one of the most common phrases, you know, your friend would make a nice move and he'd score and we'd say, that's you. I don't know if you said that growing up, but we did. Uh, represent was another one people did for a while there. But we would say, that's you, baby, way to go. And like that finger roll epitomizes the level of skill and work you've put into this. That, take, that takes way too long in the basketball court. So you just say, that's you. And when somebody, you know, takes a stupid shot or there's a turnover, you say, come on, man, that's not you. I love that way of encouraging, right? It's saying, come on, live according to who you actually are. And that's a great way for us to think about the Christian life. When we see each other acting like Jesus, we should say, that's you now. That's who you are now. And when we're living in sin or rebellion, we say, come on, that's not who you are anymore. 
See, that's how we need to encourage each other, not live up to something. But you know what the Bible says? That we live up to what we've already attained. So the Christian life of integrity is not accomplishing something that Jesus has accomplished for us, but living up to what we've already got in him. Living according to who we are now. But so as obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. You know, I've been sinning 57 years. And there's not one time sin has kept its promises to me. You know, it, it, by now I should just know better. And thankfully I do. I've seen some sin put to death in my life. And I'm so grateful for it. But when I fail, when I do sin, I think, Eric, how could you be believing the lies that sin tells you? Because sin hasn't kept its promise once. It just mocks me every time I believe that sin's going to satisfy and, and so, as obedient children, don't be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. You should know better, right? But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. So that, that's where we are. We now belong to a God who is holy and makes us in Christ holy ones. Do you know what Christians are called more than anything else in the whole New Testament? Saints. Holy ones, hagioi. Individually, you're a hagios, a holy one, a set-apart one. You're one that has been set apart for God in holiness, for his service, and in increasing purity of thought and heart and behavior. That's what we're called to, to be different. Every time I see a little Jewish kid with a yarmulke, I think, man, there's something so good about a little boy from his earliest days, having to go to school and say, yeah, that's, that's my religion. That's what we do. It's a sign of humility before God. You know, you don't want externals to force you to do that, but there's something good about early on just saying, you know, we're different. We're different. My 16-year-old son doesn't have a cell phone. And he thinks I'm, it's cruel and unusual punishment. I just can't do it. I, I can't subject him to that level of temptation and all kinds of things. I, I can't do that to him, right? And, and so he thinks, I'm, he, he just can't believe. He's like, like are we Amish? <laughs> right? And I think, yeah, on the way there, son. We're on the way there, right? And, and I want Sam to be okay. Even teachers make fun of him. Like, you have a cell phone? Yeah. I just want to go to school and say, no, he doesn't have a cell phone, right? Uh, but, but I want my kids to, to know that Christians are different that we're different, and that's not something weird, and that's not something that we want to avoid or act like isn't true. And for a long time, the church in the United States has been on this popularity campaign where we're so concerned that people realize, you know, we're just as cool as you. We're just as in, in, into things as you are. We're, instead of embracing the fact that we're, we're foreigners and aliens in a foreign land in many ways, a land we love and a land we want to be salt and light in, but let's stop trying to fit in all the time. To the point where we're not willing to be different. But as obedient children, be holy, be set apart. And the holiness of God is what we need to realize is where everything starts. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of hosts. And holiness means, first and foremost, that God is absolutely and uniquely excellent and above all creation and without sin. And he alone is holy, but we as his holy people are called to be different to be set apart, and to be growing in our moral purity at the same time. 
depending on Jesus as obedient children, please don't leave that behind. Make sure you're loading everything we said this morning into everything we're saying tonight, or we're going to miss it. We'll end up like every other religion. You know, every other religion is about what we do for God. Christianity is about what God has done for us in Christ. Radical difference. So don't leave that behind. But now we need to say, and now we have a new, a new way of living. We have a new life. And it's a life of holiness. And that's, that's what we're called to. That's how we live now as God's holy people. And as godly men, we want to be, what the Bible says, above reproach. Which means one against whom it is impossible to bring any charge of wrongdoing as could stand in partial examination. So, so we're beyond reproach. We're not trying to get close to the line. You know, I have students come to me all the time and say, yeah, I just started dating this girl. Hey, Thomas, how far is too far? And I said, dude, wrong question. If I were her father and you came me asking that question, I'd say, you're gone. You're not dating my daughter if that's how you think. About it. Like, do you do that with your car? You know, I wonder how much water I can put in my gas tank and get away with it, right? <laughs> I, I, that's a bad mentality, right? That's like, you know, how, how close can I get? Instead of saying, what's the way to relate to this woman in a way where she is more like Jesus when she breaks up with me, right? That, that's the idea. That, uh, and I say to these guys, they come to my office and I said, here's your goal with this girl that you're dating now. You want to date her in a way that after she does break up with you, statistically is likely to happen. When that happens, here's your goal. Get invited to her wedding to some other guy. How about that for a goal? And he's looking at me like I'm crazy. And I said, and then make it your goal to have her new husband come over to you and thank you for dating his wife. <laughs> and then I said, let's not stop there. Let's have her dad come over and thank you for having dated his daughter. I mean, why does that seem so ridiculously radical? It shouldn't be for God's holy people. And in the way we spend our money and, and use our resources and invest our time, are we doing it in a way that's seeking to live holy lives? That that's what we want more than anything else, to live holy lives for the Lord who is holy. That's who we need to be, depending on Jesus. And dependence on Jesus leads to obedience. You know what Jesus says? If you love me, you'll write poetry about me. He said, if you love me, you'll have a really impressive religious resume. No, he said, you'll keep my command. You'll do what I say. If you love me, you'll obey me. If you really see me as the one you're depending on for everything, you're not gonna go rogue in the way you live. You're gonna obey me. How can you love Jesus and depend on him if obeying him isn't what you're intending to do? It doesn't mean we do it perfectly until heaven. It doesn't mean we don't fail at times miserably, but even then, what do we do? We repent, and we become a great example of the way we repent, and we'll talk about that tomorrow night. But Jesus says, if you love me, you'll obey me. And so we can depend on the miraculous power of the Spirit that made us new creatures in the first place that leads to an attitude toward God that leads to a love for God that obeys God. Let's not get it twisted or make it complicated. You know, a disciple is somebody who obeys Jesus because he loves Jesus. Guys, it breaks my heart. I've been a pastor 25 years, and it just breaks my heart that guys who know better should come and say, you know, I'm divorced my wife because I don't love her anymore. I found somebody who, who makes me feel alive. And I know God wants me to be happy. 
And I'm, I'm confident. I, I, have a peace, I have a peace about this. Well, good for you. Good for you. But the word of God completely contradicts what you're saying. Does the Bible have authority in our lives or not? Does Jesus have authority in our lives or not? Look what Jesus says in Matthew 10. Whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. In other words, the way up is down in the, in the kingdom of God. To, to be willing to lose your life. The Bible says unless a seed falls to the ground and dies, it won't bear fruit. Unless you get to the end of yourself, death to self, in other words, you won't live in Christ. And it's not enough just to change words or some behaviors or your creed. Our lives need a change, which may be very costly. You know, it's amazing that the health, wealth gospel, the prosperity gospel, could ever get any traction for people who read the Bible. So often, people who decide to follow God in the Bible, their life gets jacked up. They, They get killed sometimes for it, tortured sometimes for it. They lose everything for it, like we were saying, Paul, this morning. And so if you go into this for this life getting nice and tidy, you don't understand what discipleship is. It's not enough. We may need to give up everything this side of heaven except what matters most, and that's a relationship with God. And so we need to have integrity and purity and character. And I just want to highlight for the rest of our time, basically, what's at the heart of integrity. And here's what it is. Fear the Lord. Something we don't hear a lot about these days, even in good churches. But the fear of the Lord is spoken of over 150 times in the Bible as essential to living the Christian life. The fear of the Lord is something I want us to think about. Now, it's important to understand this rightly. I love, I, I, there are so many good definitions. This prop right now is my favorite definition of the fear of the Lord. Sinclair Ferguson says this, a proper fear of God is a mixture of reverence and pleasure, joy and awe, which fills our hearts when we realize who God is and what he's done for us. It's a love for God which is so great that we would be ashamed to do anything which would displease or grieve him. And it makes us happiest when we're doing what pleases him. I love that. That's it. Now, now, now that, that, that's, I love that because it is a pursuit of holiness and integrity, but it's a pleasure-driven, uh, joy-driven, happiness-driven motivation, right? It's not just saying no to things that displease God. It's taking our greatest delight in God and knowing him and living lives that please him. That's who we are now. And and please, this isn't an unhealthy fear that you have for an abusive father at all. This is a healthy fear, though, that you have for a really good father. I've heard somebody say the gospel is, is basically that... The gospel, a lot of people say, oh no, I really messed up. Dad's going to kill me. The gospel is, oh no, I really messed up. I need to call dad. Right? Sometimes people seem afraid of God, and I think the big problem is they're actually not afraid of him enough because they think they can run away from him. 
Right? If you really fear God, it would never occur to you to solve your sin problem yourself. If you really fear God, you'd never try to run away from him because you know it's not even possible. Remember, we, I've done a lot of backpacking and hiking and encountered a lot of wildlife on the trails with my wife and by myself. And I'll never forget reading in this wildlife book about how to handle different wildlife. It's just fascinating how to differently, depending on the wildlife you're encountering, that you, you respond. So I remember on this page it said, what to do if, if you encounter a mountain lion on the trail? And it was, it was amazing. And, and do you know if you see a mountain lion on the trail, you're supposed to make yourself big and try to intimidate it and scare it. And then it said, and if that doesn't work and it charges, fight it. Right? It does. You're supposed to fight a mountain lion. Yeah. And then I'll never forget it, though. On the next page, it was what to do if you encounter a grizzly bear. And it was the opposite. If you see a grizzly, it's like, this is your trail, Mr. Grizzly Bear. I have no interest in you or your trail. It's all yours. I'll just, I'll just ignore it. You don't establish eye contact. You make yourself small. You don't want to give him any idea that you want to go here at all. Right? And then I'll never forget it. It said, and if this does not work and the bear still charges, drop to the ground in the fetal position to minimize the trauma. <laughs> That's what it said. That's what it said. Yeah, hopefully he'll just play with you for a while and then leave you alone. You're not going to outrun him. You're not going to win the fight. See, why do you fight him outline? You stand a chance. Not a good one, but you stand a chance, right? But the grizzly bear is a whole different deal, right? You don't stand a chance. You're done. And, and that's, that's a good illustration and a bad illustration of the fear of the Lord because when you fear God, you don't run from him. You don't fight him. You wave the white flag of surrender in his presence, aware of who he is and who you are. And that's the most freeing thing you can experience because you don't find a grizzly bear that may kill you. You find a God who loves you and calls you his son and alone can meet the needs we all desperately have. And so that's who this God is. It's more like the healthy fear of a good father. And one of the reasons I think we have such a hard time with that is in our society, there aren't a ton of really good fathers. There are abusive ones, there are neglectful ones, there are absent ones. Maybe you had a good father, maybe you're a great dad, that's great. But a lot of people don't even know what this means. Remember my friend Mark, who was just a wild kid, he's still kind of wild. He's a pastor in Florida. I just love this guy. Um, he was out as a teenager playing and messing around with his friends in a car. And he, they were running out of gas. And they knew there was this gas station that left the pumps on at night. So they pull in this gas station. They steal a tank of gas. And they're so cocky. They're playing Frisbee in the parking lot while they're stealing gas. And then they get about five miles down the road. And they said, we forgot our Frisbee gas station so they go back to get it and when they pull in pff, lights the police are there and they're coming to the coming to the car and my, my friend mark says nobody says a word nobody squeal and they separate him they bring him to the police station and they literally had a bright light on mark and they're interrogating him and and he's enjoying he feels like james cagney like come and get me copper he's just he's loving this and and, and he's enjoying it but he didn't know they had called his dad and Mark has a really good dad. And Mark's dad walked in. After about an hour of the police getting nowhere with him, he walks over to Mark. 
he puts his hand on the table that he's at. He almost puts his forehead on Mark's forehead, and he said, Mark, you tell them everything they want to know. <laughs> Why? Why? Because Dad showed up. Dad showed up, and we have to have an understanding of God as a good father that loves you, that's compassionate, that's gracious and merciful, but that you don't mess with. Right? God is holy, and he's a wrathful God, and he's a just God. You know, that Sinclair Ferguson definition's great, but if that one's not working for you, here's what it means to fear the Lord. You see him, and you go, <gasps> that's it. That's my definition right there. That's filled with joy and delight and, and a healthy trembling in his presence. You see God for who he is. And you have a healthy fear because of, do you realize how massively important this idea of the fear of the Lord is? Look, the beginning of wisdom is the fear of the Lord. You know how often I pray for wisdom? All the time. About a hundred times a day probably, as a parent especially. But the Bible tells me if I want wisdom, I need fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. I should pursue that even more than wisdom because that's where it starts. Look what the Bible says here about God. If you're not a Christian here tonight, look what the Bible says to you. I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body. And after that, have nothing more they can do. But I will warn you whom to fear. Fear him who after he has killed has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. See, that's not how a child of God thinks about God. Oh, we remember that we were able to flee that wrath because of Jesus. But if you're not a child of God, I just want to shoot straight with you tonight. You should have a fear of the wrath of God. I would, I would love to literally scare the hell out of you tonight because of who God is. You don't have to go there. You don't have to bear your sins and the punishment for them yourself. I want you to know that this God is a consuming fire. And by his grace, he doesn't vaporize us all with an unhindered sense of his presence. But, but this God is not to be messed with. But if you go to him, you'll never find anyone more compassionate and kind and gracious and patient and loving he is the great God above all gods. And when we see him for who he is, we're filled with holy fear. Look, why do we disobey God? Because we don't fear him. Your wickedness will punish you, Jeremiah says. Your apostasies will convict you. No one see that it's evil and bitter for you to forsake the Lord your God. Why do we do all these things? The fear of me is not in you, says the Lord of hosts. Guys, I have the best internet filter on the computers in my home, money can buy. But the answer to pornography, I'm so thankful for what Chris was saying, the answer to pornography is not better filters. It's a fear of the Lord. That's what it boils down to. We can live as practical atheists, more concerned about someone walking in the room who's a mere human being catching us looking at pornography than almighty God who's there all the time. And we can live as practical atheists as if he's not even there or doesn't care or doesn't pay attention. 
We sin, the Bible says, because we don't fear God. And God protects those who fear him. Look, the angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and rescues them. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. How blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Oh, fear the Lord, you as saints. For those who fear him, there is no want. How often do we pray for safe travel, for protection? Again, that's great to pray for. But the Bible says there's a protection that comes when you fear the Lord. When you're living for him and recognizing him for who he is. That's why we live holy lives, because we fear God. Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, making holiness perfect in the fear of God. Do you see how essential the fear of the Lord is here? This healthy fear, this healthy pleasure in God and and, and reverence of God and awe of God for who he is. That's who he is. We find ourselves walking in holiness when we fear him. Why do we submit to one another uh, in the body of Christ? Did you ever realize it's because of fear of the Lord? Be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. In other words, fear Jesus so much, you're willing to put your little petty issues and your rights aside and submit to others in the body of Christ to avoid division because you fear Jesus so much. Isn't that amazing? Unity in the body of Christ is the result of knowing God's love for us, but it's also the result of fearing the Lord. We've got to take this seriously. Look, look at the fear of the Lord, the source of confidence in life and delight. Proverbs 14, and the fear of the Lord, one has strong confidence, and his children will have a refuge. The fear of the Lord is a fountain of life that one may turn away from the snares of death. Blessed is the man who fears the Lord, who greatly delights in his commandments. Do you see, this isn't some, oh, woe's me, self-denial, I'm just giving up everything to follow Jesus. No. It's the best life you could possibly live when you fear the Lord and walk in holiness and dependence on Jesus. You delight in this. It's the source of life for you. And ultimately, we fear the Lord because we follow our example, Jesus the Messiah. Look at this prophetic messianic prophecy here in Isaiah 11. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him and the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. You want to love Jesus? You want to be like Jesus? You want to follow his example? Cultivate a heart that fears the Lord. In a healthy way, not in an unhealthy way. Every time I've ever spoken on this, a whole bunch of people come up to me and say, no, you can't fear God. That's terrible. No, there's unhealthy, sinful fear. We're not supposed to have unhealthy fear, but we're commanded over and over again to have a healthy fear of God that sees him for who he is and lives under his authority. And the Bible says that God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. Brandon didn't want to be a sheep. And so he can never have God for him because the Bible says that he's for those who humble themselves under God's mighty hand. I want God for me, not against me. And so we ask God to humble us and we seek humble hearts before him. We don't have time for that right now. I just want to end with this. Look at Romans 6. What shall we say then? Or do we continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means, may it never be. How can we who died to sin still live in it? That's not you, right? That's what he's saying. That's not you anymore. 
Do you not know that all of us who've been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. That's what we're able to do in Christ. Walk in newness of life. We don't have to be stuck anymore in patterns that maybe even we inherited in some ways or learned and had ingrained in us from our earliest days because of our experiences. We don't have to be subject to those things anymore. We've been set free. And I'm not saying sometimes it's not a difficult or protracted process of finding that freedom. But we have that freedom. We're no longer slaves to sin. And if you've never trusted Jesus tonight, you still are a slave to sin. I want you to know that. And sin is pleasurable, the Bible says, for a season. Just for a season, that's all. And you can ride that sin wave for a long time thinking you got it all figured out. But the Bible says that sin always eventually leads to death. It doesn't lead to life. It can feel like it is at times. It makes promises, but it never keeps those promises. And I would love for no one to leave here tonight not free. I don't want you to leave here a slave tonight to sin. I don't want you to leave here just still in bondage to what, what you, you, were, you booted up being, a sinner in opposition to God who doesn't fear God, who goes your own way who decides for yourself what's right and wrong and how to live your life. And I want you to know, even if you can make that work for a time, I want to write a book someday about sin, and I want to call it, How's That Working Out For You? Because I watch sin destroy lives every day of my life. When are we going to wake up and see it for what it is and wake up and see that following God and trusting Jesus is the only way to find abundant life and eternal life and the forgiveness and the righteousness and the adoption as sons that we talked about this morning. I mean, I've laid out a hard message. I don't want to soft pedal anything. I'm not a salesman up here. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not trying to, to, you know, massage this so it, it sounds more attractive to you than the Bible lays it out to be. It's the most attractive thing it could ever be because it's God for us in Christ. But it comes with a life of discipleship that's grounded in the fear of the Lord and wants to please our Father with the way we live our lives on a daily basis, living up to what we've already attained. Hey, if this weekend you've come to the realization that you're not a Christian, maybe you thought you were a Christian, and you've realized, nah, I've just been doing religion. I've been doing morality. Maybe you came knowing you weren't a Christian, and I'm so glad you're here. I want to give you an opportunity right now to trust Jesus. I want to pray for you. If you've never trusted Jesus, if you've become aware this weekend that you've never really trusted Christ in saving faith, and you want to do that tonight, I want to pray for you. So would you raise your hand right now? That's you. Thank you, brother. I see you guys. Bless you guys. Let me pray. Lord, thank you for these men who've raised their hand. Oh, Lord. That's what life is about. Finding our life in Christ. And Lord, I thank you for the incredible grace you show us in Jesus, that you've taken the initiative and done everything we need. And I thank you for these men who've raised their hand tonight and said, I want to trust Jesus. I don't want to go it alone anymore. I don't want to try to solve my sin problem alone, on my own. 
because we can't. And Lord, I'm grateful for these men. And I pray, Lord, that you would fortify them, bring brothers alongside them to help them to walk with Jesus in daily faithfulness and obedience and dependence. Finding life in him, walking in newness of life. Lord, there will be an attack even right now and tonight against them in the spiritual realm because because Satan hates what's happening right now. And so, Lord, I pray that that you would be fortifying these men, that they'd get plugged into great relationships in a local church and have a hunger for your word and prayer and fellowship that fortifies them. Lord, bless them, encourage them. And for all of us, Lord, we all need to hear the gospel every day. Help us to preach the gospel to ourselves as well as to those we love. Lord, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you that he's done everything we could ever need him to do. And we pray these things in the mighty and matchless and sufficient name of Jesus. Amen.